Father, thank you for giving us your word and, and then giving us your Holy Spirit. And we express, Father, our dependency this morning upon you as we continue our time of worship by opening up your scriptures and, and, um, and ask that, Father, our, our minds would be renewed uh, through your word, that you would give us enlightenment, give us understanding, and give us um, an appreciation for what you have said, and that it would not just be uh, something that um, we can fill a, um, a sermon note page with or scribble on the corners of our Bible, but something that we can, will be written on our hearts and that, Father, you will transform us um, by your word. And so we present ourselves to you, Father, and uh, look forward to what you'll do. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Not sure... Uh, <clears throat> Any of you bothered much to watch the impeachment of President Trump over the last couple of weeks? I suppose, uh, depending on your political persuasion, justice was either served or justice was maligned. The president's actions were either deemed impeachable or they were judged to be unimpeachable. And uh, history books down to the ages will uh, write about this, and it'll be interesting to, to see what they write. But one thing is certain. Mankind's judgment is always fallible. God's judgment never is. Now, I want you to take your Bibles, and we'll look at this passage that uh, we've just read. Romans chapter 2, and uh, please bring your Bibles or load a digital version on a uh, phone app or something, because I want you to, to see where God has said first what uh, we're going to be talking about here today and the weeks to come. Romans chapter, chapter 2. And you'll see that verse 1 begins, and I think all our translations do this, they begin with the word, therefore. Therefore, and when Paul says that, uses that word, he's basically saying, what I'm about to tell you is connected to what I've just said. Now, if you happen to get a copy of our sermon notes, you'll see in the first part of that, a little review of chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, where Paul develops this idea that God's wrath is presently, it's a present tense, being revealed, manifested on this earth against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's wrath is showing up in this world. Why? Because the truth about him is being suppressed, Paul said. The understanding of who God is, what God has done. Mankind suppresses that. I don't want to hear it. And it says they exchange the glory of God for self-glory. They take the truth of God, they exchange it for a lie. And because of that, the result of that, God's wrath is being manifested. And how does that work? How is it being manifested? Three times, he says in that chapter, that verse, he gives them over. He, as it were, backs away. He allows man to take headlong, go headlong into their own sin, to experience the full malignancy of their sin. You want to suppress truth about me? You want to ignore me? You want to make me a persona, a persona non grata? Fine. Then you'll have to suffer the consequences of that, and God gives them over. And there's a spiral uh, downward impact of sin. Sin runs headlong. Uh, verse 28 of chapter 1, just 
to show that depravity of man. Verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips. Verse 30 says, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Verse 31, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, they give hearty approval to those who practice those things. The downward spiral of, of mankind rushing headlong into their sin, embracing it fully and experiencing the full malignancy of their sin and depravity and its destructive unto death. Therefore, he starts in chapter 2, verse 1, knowing the suppression of truth about God leads to this wrath of God, therefore, you have no excuse. In chapter 1, he was talking about they, they're experiencing depravity, they're being um, given over to destruction. And now, all of a sudden, it's a second-person pronoun, Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who, who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the very same things. Paul is making a very strong indictment against some people now that he's going to talk to. You. You. Now, who is he addressing? Well, in chapter 1, we saw that he addressing, he, he talks to mankind in that general sense, the general sinfulness of mankind. But in chapter 2, he starts focusing on the critics of those he's just condemned. He, he, he's talking to the, to the moral uh, sinner, the moralist, the, the pious sinner, who kind of stands back in the peanut gallery and says, you know, yeah, I agree with you, God. I mean, I, I have said this all along. These people are depraved, and they are worthy of the, the, the strictest, most uh, horrific judgment that you can offer. I, I am fully in line with you, God. Pour it on. Give it to them. My, I, I don't even want to be in the same room with these people. Uh, therefore, you are without excuse, you who pass judgment on these people. Because in that you pass judgment, you know you're doing the very same thing. Now, Paul is talking here, um, and he's building his argument. Uh, we don't have time this morning. We could take a couple hours and kind of, you know, we, we just take little slices of the, of the argument of Paul as we work through a book. And it's hard to see the whole argument where, where he's going with this. You see in chapter 1, uh, verse 18, he has talked about God's wrath against the godless, you know, the pagan sinner. And then in this passage, he's going to talk about God's wrath against the moral sinner. And, and next week we'll see, starting in verse 17, he's going to talk about the religious, squeaky clean religious sinner. But where Paul is going in all this is that, uh, well, we're all under sin. Chapter 3, verse 9. 
All the world is going to stand guilty before God. Chapter 3, verse 19. Verse 23 of chapter 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is where Paul's argument is building. So by the time we come to chapter 3, verse 23, it is every mouth is closed. Everybody stands accountable before God because he's covered all the bases. Everybody stands before God as a sinner and subject to the judgment of God. In this passage, though, he is talking to that person who's pointing their finger and condemning as guilty these other sinners. And uh-uh, Paul, uh, God says, you're without excuse too. I'm sure the, the person maybe reading this would say, well, no, wait a minute, how can this be? Just hold it right there. <laughs> I, I don't do those things. I, 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 what do you mean I'm guilty too? Well, because you're judging others, but in reality, you're, you're doing the very same thing. Oh, now, wait a minute, God. I mean, you, you know me. I don't do those things. Uh-uh, don't lay that label on me. Why, I, I, I'm not a depraved sinner. And God would answer, sin is sin. All is rebellion against God. Every violation of God's holiness is an affront to a holy God. Well, I don't, I mean, I don't commit adultery, but wasn't it Jesus who said, if you look upon someone to lust, you've committed adultery in your heart? But I, I, I don't commit murder. Well, it was Jesus who said, if you hate somebody, you've committed murder. See, whenever we are judging others, we inevitably close our eyes to ourselves. That's what this moral sinner was doing. Before we stand in judgment against someone else, someone said, you better stand in front of a mirror. You got one finger right pointing at someone else, you got four back here. Uh, you condemn yourself, he says, because you're doing the very same thing you're claiming you're not doing. Uh, something is askew in the thinking of this person. And so starting in verse 2, Paul is going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to lay out the, the basis for God's judgment. I'm going to, I'm going to lay out uh, why God will judge, upon what basis he's going to judge. And what Paul does, he uses a little prepositional phrase three times. It's a little preposition in the Greek language, kata, and he's going to say three times, according to this, God's judgment comes. That's what kata means. According to. According, on the basis of this, God's judgment is going to come. Three times. First one there is in verse 2. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. It rightly falls. The NIV says it's based on truth. The King James says it's kata aletheia. It's according to truth. God's judgment, first and foremost, is according to truth. It's based on reality. It's not based on perceptions. It's not based on how the moral sinner appears to others. It's based on the facts. It, it's truthful. It's reality. He judges according to truth. I can remember, I have a memory back when I was in fifth grade of 
of uh, our teacher uh, catching one of my classmates cheating on a test. And um, he was immediately caught. She called him out on it. And he immediately said, well, well, Carrie and Vote were cheating too. Mark and Marlon, Marlon was my best friend. Carrie and, and Vote are cheating too. I'm hearing this. I'm, I'm mortified. You know, a little fifth grade kid, 11 years old. Wait a minute. I don't cheat. And of course, the teacher knew that. And so he got the F and, and Marlon and I got our A's. <clears throat> and I was so glad that her judgment was according to truth. Yet she could have made a mistake. God never makes a mistake. Are you familiar with the, um, the uh, Innocence Project? It's this organization that seeks to um, research uh, uh, um, people who have been incarcerated uh, improperly. Apparently, t- as of today, uh, three, 367 former convicted criminals have been exonerated through the Innocence Project, through DNA testing been shown that they did not commit the crime. And by the way, 21 of those were on death row. You see, judges and juries can make a mistake. God never does. God never makes a mistake when it comes to his judgment about our sin. The second prepositional phrase uh, is found there in verse 5. It says, but... Uh, because of your stubbornness, or according to, the little prepositional phrase is used there, but according to, or in accordance with your, your stubborn or hardness of heart, your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You, you who think you're so moral, you think you're so squeaky clean, you think you're so right, you could pass judgment on everybody else because you don't think you do those things. God is going to judge you too. His judgment is according to truth, but his judgment is also according to the receptivity of your heart. Judgment is based on how receptive the heart is to God and his judgment. The heart condition. The stubbornness heart, the unrepentant heart. Now, Paul's going to back up, verse 3 and 4, Paul's going to explain why one's heart can become hardened to their own sinfulness, why their heart is unrepentant, the word repentance, but it's the only time it's used here in the book of Romans, the word repentance. And at its core meaning, repentance means to change the mind. Um, Paul is saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to explain to you why your mind hasn't changed about the judgment of God, why it's become hardened, and it's based on some deluded thinking, two delusions that the moral sinner embraces. Verse 3, but do you suppose this, O man? Do you think the word is logizo, it's where we get our word logic, do you logically... Uh, Do you actually are reasoning to this conclusion that when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and you do the same yourself that you'll escape the judgment of God? Do you really think that you're going to escape the judgment of God? 
deluded in their, their thinking about, well, nothing's going to happen to me. And there's a second delusion. The first one is God's judgment. It's not going to fall upon me. But in verse 4, the second delusion is, hey, nothing's happened to me yet. Must not ever going to happen. Verse 4, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, knowing that, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to this change of mind, this repentance? Nothing's happened to me yet. You're thinking lightly, literally, you're, you're thinking, you're despising the kindness of God, his tolerance, his patience. Don't, don't take God for granted. He's a holy God. Judgment is going to come, but you're, you're deluded into the character of God. You've you got to get your mind changed about who God is. Mankind doesn't get off scot-free. You, you're... You're not going to escape the judgment of God. Um, you're deluded in your thinking. The hardness and unrepentant heart of the moral sinner comes when he, he doesn't take into account that God's wonderful kindness and patience is waiting for his heart to turn. It's rather kind of an interesting uh, um, characteristic of God. I, I, I don't think you would find this necessarily in parenting books. Um, you know, like, just, just wait till mom comes home, you know, or just wait till dad gets home. You know, we're gonna, right now I'm tolerant, but boy, you're going to get popped when dad gets here. Or, you know, I don't think it would be any parenting book that says, um, here, here's what we're going to do. Do any, anything you want, children, but on the last Friday of the month, judgment is going to fall, okay? We're just going to collect them all and just, you know, you're going to get whacked on the last Friday of the month. Uh, Paul is saying, you know, God is kind and he's tolerant and he's patient, but don't misunderstand that, that he will not act in judgment. God desires man's repentance, his change of mind, not his punishment. And the purpose of his kindness is not to excuse sin. It's to bring about repentance. And yet man has this faulty thinking about the kindness of God. How does that happen? How does man have a, a gain this faulty perspective, this delusion about God? Might get some insight from Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. We think God's patience indicates his pleasure. Hey, me and God are tight, man. Oh, yeah, I don't I kind of mess up every once in a while, but, you know, who doesn't? Why? In fact, I know some, some really, really sinners I, I grew up, as many of you know, in a Christian home. I became a Christian when I was five years old. Man, I, I, I wanted to go to, I wanted to be a preacher since I was five years old. I wanted to go to Dallas Theological Seminary ever since I was in sixth grade. I lived a squeaky clean life. I think, you know, the worst thing I ever do was probably when I was two years old and I messed my pants. I don't know. <laughs> and I know some of your testimonies. 
Some of you people got some pretty dark stuff in your background. Are we understanding God's character properly? People may think God is like the kindly old grandfather. And he pats us on the heads and he says, well, you know, boys will be boys. We'll let it go this time. No. And if there's one thing I would hope we can walk out of here understanding is that God deals with sin. And what liar is there in our group today that would say, I've never sinned? God does not take kindly to sin. He is a God who judges sin. And that puts every one of us in a very, very precarious situation. The moral sinner here in this chapter may think, hey, I'm not as bad as, you know, Bill or Jim or Sally. And God is wiping all that away by saying, you are just as bad in the eyes of a holy God. And he says there again in verse 5 that it's on the cord- in accordance with your stubborn or hardened, unrepentant heart. You are actually storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. Oh no, God is done sweeping it under the carpet. He's not patting us on the head and saying boys will be boys. He says right there, storing up for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God's judgment can be viewed accumulatively it's being stored up. The word is thesaridzo, thesaurus. You know what a thesaurus is, a collection, a storehouse of synonyms. He's storing it up. There is a day coming, a day of wrath, a day of accountability. Jesus, by the way, talked about that. He called it the day of great tribulation. This world is going to experience it. Judgment of God is according to truth. It's according to the receptivity of a man's heart. The third little prepositional phrase is right there in verse 6. He will judge, he will render to each person according to their deeds. It's based on what one does. It's based on how one lives their life. Look at verse 7 and the rest of the passage. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. God's judgment is according to man's deeds. He goes on and reemphasizes that, verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who, who does evil, to the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also, also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. All those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles, who don't have the law, instinctively do the things of the law, these not having the law have a law unto themselves in that they show 
the work of the law written in their hearts, the, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God is going to judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. In other words, he's talked about there is the inevitability of coming judgment. Verse 3, you're not going to escape it. The breadth of God's judgment, no one is going to get missed out. God does not show partiality. The depth of God's judgment, the very secrets of men's hearts are going to get exposed. It's not the hearers of the law who stand justly before God. It's those who do it. I don't know about you, but that brings about attention to me. Do you realize the word grace isn't even mentioned in this passage? In fact, he's going to build to a conclusion in chapter 3, after saying all are under sin, verse 9, that the whole world stands accountable, verse 19. Verse 23, that all have sinned. He's going to build to a conclusion that says, by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Wait a minute, verse 13 just said, hearers of the law are just before God, doers of the law will be justified. But then he says in chapter 3, verse 20, no flesh is justified by works. I mean, did Paul kind of blank out here? Did he have a little mini stroke or something here as he's writing this? Was it, was it copied improperly? What's going on here? Well, Paul, steeped in the Old Testament, as he writes to this moral sinner that he's going to build this, this religious Jewish person, steeped in the law, who looks at their self-righteousness, says, hey, I'm pretty good. That Paul has already said, mm-mm, no, no, you're no different than chapter 1, the depraved sinner. Paul, steeped in the Old Testament law, is drawing upon that Old Testament law to build his case. So, for instance, Deuteronomy 28, key passage in the Old Testament. The Jewish people, Israel, gets their law. And God tells the nation of Israel in chapter 28, verse 1, Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, all his commandments, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. And then starting in verse 2 and all the way through verse 14, it is blessings, 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 blessings. Praise God from whom all blessings will flow if you obey everything that I've commanded you. Then starting in verse 15, he says, but... It shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, all these curses will come upon you and will overtake you. And starting in verse 16 all the way through verse 68, curse, 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 curses, curses everywhere. God is saying, you want to live? then you got to obey me 100%. Or you will die under the judgment hand, my, my hand of judgment. 
In fact, Moses, as he writes later in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he'll come and say, God is putting before us two paths, life and death. And he begs them, so choose life and live. Obey the commandments of God. And interestingly, the Jewish people would bow their head and they said, uh, yep, well, yeah, everything you've commanded, we will do. Oh, really? And we read the whole Old Testament and time and time again, what do we read? Failure, 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 breaking of the law constantly, constantly, judgment, 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 death. You want to experience life? then you have to obey the law 100%, perfectly. Zero tolerance before a holy God. And that's what Paul is saying to the moral sinner here in Romans chapter 2. He's simply going back to the concepts of the Old Testament. You want to live? 100% obedience to that law of God or that law that's written in your heart, O Gentiles to what you know to be true. No violations, no grading on the curve, no sweeping it under the carpet. 100% compliance. You see, ultimately, Paul is speaking about the basis here of man's condemnation, not about his eternal salvation. Paul is not showing men how they can ultimately stand before God eternally saved. He is demonstrating why men are lost and how men are judged. You see, if a person could live their life in perfect, 100% compliance to the character, to the law of God, yes, verse 13 would kick in. Doers of the law will be justified. They will stand before God holy and clean if you obey it 100%. But who has ever done that? And you see, the moral sinner stands here now shaking in his boots once proud, self-righteous, saying, well, I, you know, I'm pretty good. I don't do this. I don't do that. I'm not like those people. And God has said, no, you, you do the very same thing. You are without excuse. You are a sinner just like everyone else. And if you want to approach a holy God on the basis of your performance, have at it. Oh, Yes. Doers of the law, 100%, stand before God justified. But you ain't it, he says to the moral sinner. And next week he'll say to the religious person, you don't have it either. And there is not a person in this room who could ever stand before a holy God and not receive his judgment if it was based on your performance. Because none of us are perfect. 
And like Israel of the Old Testament, as they found out, to be declared right in the eyes of God, a holy God, by our performance and works is an absolute impossibility. No one can live a perfect life and therefore no one has the right to avoid the judgment of God and the coming day of wrath. No one. One thing I hope we understand as we leave here today is God does not take kindly to sin. Never has, never will. And there's not a person in this world who can avoid the judgment of God based on their works. There is no such person. Or is there? Paul said to the Romans as he writes this epistle, chapter 1, verse 15, I can't wait to come to Rome. I can't wait to come to Rome and, and tell you about the good news, the gospel. That's what the word gospel means. I, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 16, because it's the good news about Jesus that unleashes the power of God to bring about rescue. We can be rescued from the judgment of God. We can be rescued from the impact of our own sinfulness. Because you see, Paul says in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, in that message of the gospel, of the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. And as Paul develops his argument in Romans chapter 3, we'll see what he means by that. The simple, wonderful, good news message that as God looked down upon us and he saw our sinfulness and our inability to do anything to earn a spot in his heaven, to avoid his judgment for all eternity. He sent his son, Jesus, to do something about it. And Jesus, in his perfection and perfect righteousness, came to this earth, wrapped himself up in humanity. He became fully human, identifying fully with humanity, tempted in all aspects as we would be tempted, and yet he was perfectly sinless. And he lived on this earth in perfect sinlessness. The perfect God-man. And he came and he went on that cross and a wonderful transaction took place. The Bible said God in his infinite love and justice took our sin gathered up our sin and put it on his son, Jesus. And then God took Jesus' righteousness, the perfections of Jesus, the perfect law-abiding Jesus, and he took Jesus' righteousness and he laid it to our account. You see, the moment a person, a sinner, trusts Christ as their personal Savior, the moment of faith this grand transaction takes place. Our sin goes onto the account of Jesus. And his righteousness comes to our account. You want to know how people like you and me 
unworthy sinners can avoid the judgment of God that's inevitable? We hide, we cover ourselves under the righteousness of Jesus. It's placed to our account. And it's a free gift. It's, it, it's brought to our account simply by believing in Jesus. Paul is saying, that's the gospel. That's the good news. The righteousness of God is, is manifested. It's revealed. It breaks through into the, the human heart of sinfulness, of depravity. It covers us and clothes us with the righteousness of Jesus. And our sin is dealt with by Jesus on the cross. And whoever puts their faith in Christ, whoever accepts that message as true, whoever transfers their trust off of themselves and unto Christ and Christ alone, in that moment of faith, his righteousness becomes ours. And God sees us now in the righteousness of his son so that we can go to heaven. Yes, we who mess up all the time, we who are sinners, we will actually get to heaven, not because of what we have done or what we earned, but because Christ earned it for us, his righteousness. That's why we say here at Fellowship Bible Church, I'm not going to invite you now to walk an aisle. I'm not going to invite you to say a prayer, close your eyes, you know, bow your heads, no man peeking. Who's going to be the first? Stand up, raise your hand, sign a card, get baptized. <laughs> you think that can assuage the judgment of God against us? One thing does, the work of Jesus, and it's simply received by believing. God so loved this world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And folks, you can walk out of here today, and most of us here probably can, and I hope we walk out rejoicing with a bit of a, a, a tremble in our legs and our knees realizing in fear, in reverence before God, it wasn't about me, it was about Jesus. And so we walk out of here with great joy. But some of you may have yet to trust Christ as your personal Savior. And I want to invite you right now to make sure that when you walk out of these back doors today, without beyond a shadow of a doubt, you will not come under the eternal judgment of God. Because you're a sinner, just like me. Will you receive the free gift of eternal life, of the righteousness of Jesus, I'm going to invite you right now to believe that good news message that Jesus died, paid for your sins, and rose again, gives you the free gift of eternal life. Will you trust Christ right now? Is what I just said true for you? And you say, yes, yes it is. My only hope is Jesus. In this moment of faith, you become a child of God. The righteousness of God, of Christ, is now yours as a free gift. The reality of your sin being placed on Jesus, it's a finished transaction. It's completed. And we stand now in the complete confidence that Jesus Christ did it all. That's where this moral sinner needed to come to. That's where the religious sinner needs to come to next week. That's where every one of us in this room, we stand in the righteousness of Christ and him alone. Isn't God good? Isn't God just? He deals with sin 
and still lets sinners into heaven. That's Romans 3, and we'll get there. Let's pray. Father, uh, we are so grateful, Lord, for what you've done for us. We don't deserve it. You have blessed us with the gift of eternal life. And Father, um, help us always to stand in a position of, of, of grace, of, of a, a spirit of unworthiness, but uh, of great joy and appreciation and gratitude for what you've done for us. As we close this morning, Father, we want to sing to you of this truth. And you know our hearts, and we're so delighted, Father, for what you've done for us. We're delighted for your word, apart from which we would never know these things. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.